Welcome to City Road on 2SER 107.3 in Sydney and podcasting around the world via cityroadpod.org. I'm Dallas Rogers. In our work, we found some interesting ways of going beyond the discussion around NIMBYs. Today, we're talking about how the people of our cities are working together to engage in the politics of city making. And I'm talking with Cameron McAuliffe from Western Sydney University. In the politics of community engagement, you've got on the one side this idea that we should be more inclusive, and on the other side, there's this sense that the people who are not in my backyard, they're the people who are disrupting development. They're the people who are in the way. And using the work of MOOF and her distinction between this sort of unproductive antagonism and her notion of a productive agonism, we can actually see that the use of the word NIMBY does have some purchase in some cases, but there's an overreach in the way it's being used. Some of the times when NIMBY is being used, it's actually a more nuanced negotiation amongst willing, willing actors that have different positions. And so it's actually more productive than it appears. And we'll return to Chantelle Mouffe and our discussion about the NIMBYs, agonism and antagonism a little bit later. But first, Cameron, welcome to the show. Hey, hi. How are you? Cameron, before we get into the discussion about urban planning theory and the work of Chantelle Mouffe, we might need to say something about the urban planning context here in Sydney. As many of our listeners will know, governments around the world are creating new ways for the private sector to get involved in the funding and provision of major infrastructure. And this is what people often refer to when they talk about new market-centric or neoliberal urban planning paradigms. Under these models of urban planning, urban development is increasingly valued as an economic process or as a driver of the economy, rather than, say, as a social process that might create a more just or equitable city. So, Cameron, what's going on here with community involvement in urban development? Right, yeah, well, uh, there's some interesting things going on at the moment. Just had a big amendment to the Environment and Planning Assessment Act, which has been in place for almost 40 years, and there's a whole raft of things that are there. I'm not a planner, I'm a geographer, but I've been doing some work, interestingly, with you around community engagement and participation. One of the big and contentious things that's coming out of this new act, which will be coming online in the first half of this year, is uh, that local governments, among other development authorities at different scales, but local governments in particular, will be required to have mandatory community participation plans, which is interesting. It is interesting. I guess they've always been required to consult the community at some level. They've been required to put DAs out for public commentary, but I guess they're talking about something else here, are they? Well, these changes that are coming through this Act, they're being lauded as a, you know, a real effort to increase the engagement with communities, effort to be more strategic about planning, an effort to try and dissuade people from their distrust of the, the planning system, if you like. And through making these mandatory community participation plans, that's seen as a, a step forward in community engagement. But there's some warnings out there that have come, I've been noticing some people talking about the fact that, well, by doing this, we're going to do, we're going to make, you know, there's more, there's less certainty for developers. This may under, undermine development activity. It also may delay rather than speed up the development process, and it may lead to more legal challenges. But from the perspective of the research that, that, that we've been doing, uh, having a look at this, I think they're missing the point. 
And the point here is that community involvement is not just about having a say on the latest strategic urban planning document or local development application. It's also about how residents and community groups can come together to hold governments, politicians, the private sector and urban planners to account for the city that they're planning and building. And this is where the real politics of the city lies, in the competing claims over who gets to plan and build our cities. But sometimes this politics is obscured by claims that residents already have a say in urban planning, or that more participatory planning will slow down development. When they're looking at these changes and saying these might cause delays and, and all these sorts of things, one of the things that strikes me is the fact that, as you pointed out, there's always been community participation. There's always been community participation. There's a, there's a commitment, and you would probably say across all councils, particularly in Sydney, to participatory planning processes, to community engagements of some form, whether that's statutory or beyond that, to engage over and above with a, with a view to being more inclusive. But that hasn't stopped people becoming more and more unhappy, distrustful of the planning system, more and more seeing it as an inevitability that the, the, that the planners and, if you like, the, the government are in league with developers in order to push forward a particular type of city. Because we've moved away from an urban planning model where there is the government and they produce urban plans. And in the past, they've actually funded and built the infrastructure as well. And so we have this model now where we have the government planners doing some of the planning. Sometimes they outsource some of that to consultants. Then they ask for the private sector to fund and build that infrastructure. And so there's another player there. And then on tacked onto the other side is this increasing call for community participation. So we have a new role for the citizens in there as well. So a changing dynamic for the public sector, the private sector, and for citizens. Yes. And interesting in, in putting forward this new path towards community participation, it sets up a mandatory formal engagement system. And in the work that we've been doing, I think that we see that as, as a limited view of the way that the actual politics of urban development works. How, how do we see the politics of urban development working? Oh, well, there's a formal system. And there's the stuff that happens beyond the formal system. And so if I were a planner, I'd be talking about the planning system. But as a, a, perhaps as an urban geographer, I've got a, a, a broader perspective here and think about it within the terms of urban development. And I see planning as a part of the politics. Interestingly, in the way that we've been doing our research, we can see a formal politics of community engagement. And, and these changes reinforce that formal politics as, as a way forward. But what we've found is that people operate both within and beyond that formal politics in exactly the same, well, in different ways, but in exactly the same sense that these other actors are moving between formal and informal practices and, and, and uh, if you like, uh, uh, exertions of power. Can you give me some examples of formal and informal? So uh, a formal development process will have, the, as you said, the development application process and, and it'll be on view and people can send in their responses to that. And the, the council will have uh, processes put in place and, and so these new plans will formalise the way that you approach those and, and set up the principles of how you would deal with those and that community perspectives and that you would have to write something in response to that. So that's a, the example of a, a formal process. What we've found is that increasingly people uh, don't trust those formal processes. They find that those formal processes are inadequate. And in fact, there's a sense, and, and the term we've been using in this is, is, is a kind of post-politics. By being included, they're being excluded. 
Okay, and so this becomes a means to an end. And so instead of seeing community development as a democratic process that actually is an inclusive process where people can have substantive impact, we find a ticker box process where there's the engagement process, that the council goes through an engagement process, and that allows them to say that they've engaged with the community. And therefore, they can tick that box and move on with the development, as it were. One of the critiques around that is the fact that uh, if we move the engagement process up towards the strategic end, we can you know, best get it over and done with and we can get on with the, the, the practices of really building this city. And that's been the strategic planning approach, has been to pull consultation with the whole community of the city up front, get everybody's views on what the city should look like, and then for the next 20 or 30 years just get on with developing it. Get on with developing it, that's right. And it's little wonder that people become disenchanted with such a process. And so that's the formal process. What's the informal process? So the informal process, if you like, it's the way that in, in our discussions with uh, community groups, uh, so-called resident action groups in our research, they see the operation of the murky worlds of development operating outside of the formal practices where influence is peddled. And so if you like there's something that's happening outside of that formal politics that's actually influencing the politics of urban development. And so an informal practice might be the direct access that a developer has to uh, council bureaucrats or to councillors. And, and there's ranges of ways that that can happen. Now, in terms of the work that we've been doing, we've found that some of the sophisticated ways that resident action groups and, and other community groups are, are operating include engagements with the formal practices through the formal community engagement uh, mechanisms and when dissatisfied with the way that they are working then moving towards informal practices of influence and so that might be through a media campaign it might be through lobbying a particular councillor or even a state government member in order to influence councils there might be a protest and so we see a whole range of ways that some of the things that might end up in the media as saying this is resistance or this is nimbyism, but it's actually a part of a more sophisticated or, a, or at least something with more forethought as a way of influencing what's happening in the formal practices of urban development. So instead of thinking that all development occurs within the formal practices, you're saying if a development is taking place in a particular neighbourhood, then those residents might engage with the formal processes, but they also might engage with the informal processes, and they probably will build a political strategy that includes both. It all depends on, you might say, their social capital. You know, and so we found a range of responses. We found that some of those those smaller initial movements against small scale neighbourhood based developments might not have the ability to do that, and so therefore their first step is to go through those formal processes. And we observed through our discussions with smaller, uh, less developed community and resident action groups a sense of disempowerment in those processes, a sense of futility even in some cases where, where they went through the process, had their say, continued to have their say and were routinely ignored. So that's the silence through inclusion. You're, in, you're included in the process but you don't achieve the political objectives that you wanted to achieve by going through that process. That's right, that's right. So the other end of that spectrum is groups that we observed that had, if you like, complex 
sets of values that underpin their position that developed over time, a recognition of plural actors in the city, an understanding of a, a real politic and the social capital to mobilise these informal practices so that they could, in some cases, overcome what would be perceived as a lack of power in these situations through strategic action. And some of those power structures are that the government holds the power to make the planning rules and, and assess the planning documents, that the private sector has a lot of capital and therefore some sort of political influence, that community members may or may not have cultural capital that they can use to interject into these processes so that everybody who comes to the table has a different set of political tools that they can use. But what you're saying is in this process, that's flattened. That's the assumption. And so what we see in in the formalisation of these consensus-seeking processes and in the way that the rubber hits the road is that they make an assumption that they can achieve consensus. Habermas doesn't make that assumption. Habermas says that's an ideal that you actually can't because of the complexities of the, of the process. But there's an assumption that you can achieve this ideal moment. So there's the assumption that you can all come together in the community centre and have it out. And despite your power imbalances, we can come to an agreement. Yes. And so this is where I see the weaknesses of the way that we're going to move forward towards these local government community plans, community participation plans, is that there's going to be a, a, a reaffirmation of the underpinnings uh, of consensus-seeking engagement practices um, that are already been shown to be inadequate. Okay, And so we'll, we'll get a further formalisation of this process, which is unfortunate. And in our work, we're following in the footsteps of others who have critiqued consensus-seeking in, in urban development and planning. We don't like it very much, do we? No, we don't like it very much. What, what do we like? We like conflict. <laughs> and so there's a, there's a debate in, in, in planning theory uh, around this sort of tension between consensus and conflict. And the work on conflict, we're particularly following the work of Chantal Mouffe and, and her ideas of agonistic pluralism, where essentially she says that there, there is no consensus, that we fundamentally don't agree. But when we have a social outcome, it's because of the working of power. And so you can't park power at the door. And so if we were to look at the way that formal politics works, the actions of power in who actually organises consensus-seeking processes. So the local government does. It's not a community-led process. It's a state-led process. Okay, that's a, a manifestation of power. The whens, whats, wheres and, and whys become, become important questions in that how that power plays out. So you're already under, undermining those assumptions about this sort of ideal moment of, of, of consensus seeking. So in the notions of conflict that we're talking about, we're saying that actually there's a fundamental uh, sort of antagonism that people have, that coming together and negotiating doesn't necessarily get rid of that uh, fundamental antagonism. But when you get to a, a social outcome, it's because there's either been a negotiation, a meeting of a meeting, a mutual respect of, of of the different positions, or it's been an exertion of power that ultimately elides those those other those other voices. So is that why we can't solve everything in the community consultation in the local community hall? Well, yeah, it, it reminds me of those sorts of times when you sit around the table and you all nod your head and say, "I agree, I agree," and then you go back to your desk and say, "I completely disagree," but I wasn't I wasn't about to, you know say something in front of my boss because that would get me in trouble. You know, uh, there, there are these moments where we all are forced into, a, 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 if you like, a momentary uh, agreement. Some people are grudgingly bought there. Others are not bought there at all. 
uh, and they remain an, an antagonistic or resistant. You're listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 and podcasting around the world via cityroadpod.org. We're speaking with Cameron McAuliffe about how Sydney siders are working in and around the formal planning system in Sydney. And now, the discussion moves on to those NIMBYs. Let's talk about this idea of antagonism and agonism. Both of those terms tend to freak people out when they hear them. So what Moose says is that we need to move people from antagonistic relationships which are based just on opposition to these more productive, in her view, agonistic positions where you can be friendly enemies, where you can come in, you can debate things. You don't have to agree, but you're part of the discussion, part of the politics, she would say. So for Mouffe, she says that, you know, we all we all disagree. We all have this sort of fundamental antagonism. And she calls this the realm of the political. And so it's about democracy. It's about the fact that we all have these sorts of fundamental disagreements. But she sees the way that we can actually move forward within that context, that see it is not disabling, is to actually, we can still have different positions, but we transition to a more agonistic position. And she calls this politics. It's a term that she uses to represent the way that people are productively engaging across difference or even in spite of difference, okay? Recognising that they have the right to difference, but committed, being committed to, a, say, a negotiated social outcome. But she never says how to do that in practice, does she? Not really, no. Uh, and so, so in applying Mouffe's political philosophical position to urban planning, we've, we've had to think a little bit beyond the, this sort of dichotomy of, of antagonism and, and agonism. And we, through our work with resident action groups, have observed an, a, an extra modalities of antagonism, if you like. So we have these three modalities of antagonism that put you on the path towards agonism. So tell us about those three. So if the whole aim is to, you know, take people out of an antagonistic, unproductive engagement. So that's the NIMBY standing on the, at the yep. fence, chained to the fence, I'm not doing this, zero-sum game, yep. I'm not moving. Yep. If you want to move them into something more... More productive. Okay, so, so yes, you've got this zero-sum game where any sort of development outcome that doesn't fit their preconceived notions of what the community should be or was or, or, or will be in the future um, is perceived as an, a negative outcome. A negotiated outcome would be something where groups with different positions, be that the state, the developer and the community, let's just make it a simple set of three, they may all have different expectations, but they could negotiate an outcome that partially satisfies the needs of all without totally satisfying their needs. And, and all parties can recognise that as a productive outcome. And so that's how you would differ between, say, the antagonism of a, a NIMBY who isn't ready to move their position and isn't ready to accept that others have a right to different positions towards, a, if you like, a, a mutual respect across difference that allows an engagement even though people are still holding different positions. Uh, and, and in that way, no one totally wins, but no one totally loses either. And there's no consensus. There's no consensus, no, no. And so, and so there's a persistence of conflict. Now, why would a group such as a community group persist within the context of uneven power to get these meagre crumbs of negotiated outcomes? Well, within, again, the work of MOOF and, and the theoretical trajectory where she comes from, the notion of the social outcome is a hegemonic moment. It's a moment where everything sorts of settles. 
But um, going back to, to, to Gramsci, um, that moment of hegemony is contingent. And so if this is the operation of power, that can change over time. And so staying in the politics, being someone who's in that negotiation allows you to not only achieve a negotiated outcome where you may have impact, but also allows you to stay inside that negotiated outcome as it moves on so that if something should change, you're there. Okay. Whereas we find that disenfranchised adversarial position of those, for example, those small groups that say no, no, no to development. Who we call rigid antagonists. Who we call rigid antagonists. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and so that rigidity leads to them being kept outside the politics. And so that sense of despair with the formal system is reinforced by the fact that since they won't negotiate, they become excluded. So you have the rigid antagonists, the classic NIMBYs, mm -hmm. and they are outside the discussion yes. and they are saying no to everything, mm -hmm. but they've got no chance to influence the process because of that stance. On at the other end, you've got what we might call strategic antagonists mm -hmm. who enter into the discussion. They understand that the power structure is rigged, but they want to be in the discussion having a little bit of say and if they're in there, they can be in there for the long term. That's right. That's right. And some of the groups that we spoke to were in for the long term and had matured their position to a very plural and complex position on the way that urban development worked. And in some cases, they became exemplars in those local engagements. They were recognised as having uh, institutional histories and knowledge, even more so than, say, local government, where you have churn and, 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 and the knowledge disappears. And so these sorts of complex understandings of the nature of urban development allows groups to maybe start on a track. For one example, we had a group that started as an environmental group, classic sort of environmental feminist background in the 1980s, emerging in the 1980s, 70s and 80s. And, and, and they were very focused on environmental issues. But in the present, given the nature of urban development in Sydney, they had become more focused on issues of urban concentration and, and density. That had led to schisms within the group and, and some people who re remained pure moved out, but the, the, the people that remained, uh, they felt that they had a, a, a more nuanced way of understanding those sort of complex issues and that allowed them to better engage in the formal and informal processes uh, that influence development. Thanks for listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3. I'm Dallas Rogers. You can find and subscribe to our podcast via our website at cityroadpod.org. We're part of the Urban Broadcast Collective and the Community Radio Network.